Take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's good to see those kiddos go out with smiles on their face. Going to have a good time downstairs and excited for uh, our kids' ministry. Students just got back from student camp. Kids' ministry will be going to camp here in a week or so, and uh, a couple weeks, I guess. And uh, we've got a lot of things happening later this summer with our sports camp being one of those, the first full week of August. And uh, if you haven't yet signed up to volunteer, uh, we could use your help in some form or fashion. And so that information is in your bulletin. That's just a little free uh, uh, commercial that I didn't plan on to share. So that's free this morning. And uh, you can take that and uh, be blessed with it. Second Timothy chapter 2. We've been working uh, this summer so far through this small, short epistle. And uh, really just looking at this idea of godly training. Uh, how can we grow? How should we be growing in our faith? And Paul here, as you know, is writing from uh, his really his prison cell where he's going to spend his last days. He's been most likely convicted of a state crime, and now he's awaiting execution. And so he's sending this basically last letter uh, to Timothy, his young mentee in the faith, to encourage him, to equip him, to challenge him, to strengthen him in the faith and in the ministry that God's called him. And so this is applicable to us today as well. Uh, I mentioned as we started this letter just a few weeks ago that the Christian life and, and Christian ministry are a grind. They're a daily grind in our lives. In fact, you cannot and we should not expect to have a great Christian life or to have an effective ministry if we don't plan for, if we don't work toward having a great life and having a great ministry. That requires emphasis, that requires uh, effort, and it is a daily effort in our life. And so this, this reality has largely been the thesis of the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy up to this point. We've seen him talk about this stress that comes with ministry and what he needs to put into ministry. And, and so he's encouraging him in, to continue in this faith because Paul knows from personal experience that the Christian life and Christian ministry is no easy task. He's the one that's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned, left for dead. He's been run out of multiple towns. He's been... Uh, falsely accused, put on trial, and now has been convicted and is awaiting execution. So the Christian life requires meticulous endurance. Think about it. It requires this endurance because everything in this world is working against the believer. Everything is working against you. This morning, just standing here or sitting here, uh, whatever your posture was as we were singing, there was a war going on. You are either going to focus upon the Lord, you're going to uh, hear the words of the songs, the lyrics of the songs, and, and be drawn to the great teachings of Scripture that affirm those lyrics, that talk about His greatness and His faithfulness and His goodness and, and His beauty and salvation. You're going to be drawn to worship Him in His holiness, or you're going to be distracted. You see, everything that we do in life is confronted as a believer, even our worship times, especially our prayer times. It's a meticulous grind in our life if we want to be holy, if we want to be effective and used by God. And so this is true of pastors. This is true of small group leaders within our church. It's true of all church members. All of us alike are, are facing this. There are going to be times when the distraction and times when the discouragement comes from outside the church, but too many times that discouragement and that distraction comes from within the church as members form their own ideas of what the ministry should be. Anybody got their own ideas about what ministry should look like here at Red Lane? Everybody should probably be raising their hand at this point. Uh, Tom Rayner, who uh, just 
retired from Lifeway. He was there for over 10 years. Uh, he, he writes a lot and, and big-time author and does a lot with pastors. And so a few years back, he came out with this article. I remember seeing it and came across it again this week. It's called 25 Really Weird Things Said to Pastors. I, I want to share a few of these with you because I've heard some weird things over the years in ministry. You've probably heard some weird things as well. Here's just a few. I'm not going to read all 25, but I'm going to read a good, good number of them because I think they're humus. And so basically, he, he, he's going to share with us the statement said to a pastor, not necessarily him, and he has pastored a few churches back in the day and then entered academia. But then he's going to give sort of a rebuttal to that statement. So here, number one, first thing, really weird thing said to a pastor. Pastor, we need a small group for cat lovers. Well, I guess they could serve meow mix as a snack. That's his rebuttal. Number two, pastor, you need to change your voice. Well, yes, ma'am, I'll try to have that fixed by next week. Number three, pastor, our expensive coffee is attracting too many hipsters. Yep. You don't want any hipsters in the church. Y'all know what a hipster is? Not really. Okay. Well, I, go to the city. You'll see some hipsters. Really, they wear, wear really tight pants and walk around with their phone in their face. That's a hipster. You probably think I'm a hipster, but I'm not. Uh, number four, preachers who don't wear suits and ties aren't saved. It's in the Bible. I should have known that's what Jesus and Paul wore. Number five, Pastor, your socks are distracting. I understand that. I won't wear socks anymore. Number six, Pastor, you shouldn't make people leave the youth group after they graduate. Well, it's going to get really weird when they turn 70. Pastor, we need to start attracting more normal people at the church, so you'll be leaving sometime soon, right? Pastor, I've developed cancer because you don't preach from the KJV. We have a major medical announcement here. A new carcinogen has been discovered. It's the, cage, the non-preaching of the KJV. Pastor, your wife never compliments me about my hair or dress. Well, there could be a reason for that. <laughs> Pastor, you're not enough, not enough people. Sorry, I messed it up. Not enough people signed up for the church golf tournament. You have poor leadership skills. I'm so sorry about that. I really expected more people to sign up since most of our deacons play golf on Sunday morning. That's not true of our church. They fish on Sunday morning. I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, he showed up for church this morning. God bless him. I don't know who said it, so you're safe. Pastor, I think you're trying to preach caffeineism. Well, it's probably just Reformed theology with a little extra kick. Some of you might not get that. Later, go Google Reformed Theology. Uh, Pastor, if Jesus sang from the red hymnals, why can't we? Well, Jesus actually sang from the blue hymnals, so sorry. Pastor, I don't like the brand of donuts in the foyer. It's better than Meow Mix. Going back to the first one. Pastor, you shouldn't drink water when you preach. Well, at least not simultaneously. The toilet paper is on the wrong way in the ladies' restroom. It's rolled under instead of older. I think it's still functional. <laughs> Some of you, are, you're, you're probably going to go look at that today because it, it just wigs you out. And I'm one of those a little bit, but I'll function either way. But I have my preference. Pastor, why don't you ever preach on Tim Tebow? Don't worry. Be patient. I'm doing a six-week expository sermon series on Tim, Tim Tebow in the fall. Not true of me, but that's his rebuttal. Pastor, you don't have ashtrays in the fellowship hall. Well, sure we do. They're right next to the spittoons for your, your chewing tobacco. 
I'm glad we don't, no, I'm not even going to touch that. I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about previous churches, but I'll just let that one rest. See, the Lord gives you wisdom and discernment if you'll listen to him, right? Pastor, did you see me waving in the back of the worship center? You preached too long. It was time to eat. Well, who needs a clock when I've got you? There, I got a funny story about this one. I, I, my first church pastoring, I was in seminary, and we did an 11 o'clock service, and it was an hour long. Well, you've seen me preach long enough. You know that's probably not enough time for a worship service. And so that glass window was always not, yeah, that glass ceiling is really a way to say it. Well, I was always breaking it. I mean, I was always going past. And so almost every Sunday, I would have this person for a long, long time hold their watch up from the back pew on this side and start tapping it. And what I would do would preach 10 minutes longer to spite that person. Not really, but I typically would go over, but I wanted to do it despite. <clears throat> Pastor, you don't look at our side of the worship center enough when you preach. Well, there's a reason you're on that side. Again, not true of me. Pastor, we're leaving the church because you have a red cross on the building, and that's the color of the devil. I completely understand. That's right there in that same verse that talks about the devil's pitchfork and his horns. Some of you are didn't laugh at that because you really think that is in the Bible. Right? Okay. You're scaring me. That's supposed to be funny. Some of you are like, what is it? It is in the Bible. No, that's called cartoons. All right, last one and then we'll move on. Pastor, your sermon needed more calories. Okay, I'll feed it some of the donuts that are in the foyer. You know, these are funny to me. I don't know how funny they are to you, but um, I, uh, I, I, ministry is comical. And uh, when you're pastoring a church or in ministry, even a small group leader, you get the same thing. People have all these different preconceived ideas of the way things should be. And some are right, some are wrong, some are good, some are not good, some are just indifferent. We just have different understandings or different perspectives on certain things. We want to make sure that we have the Lord's perspective. And then in certain areas, there's wiggle room, but we all have an opinion. Christians are opinionated. Humans are opinionated. And so these things make me laugh because I've experienced a whole lot of these things in 20 or so years of ministry. And so I like to follow a few uh, different Twitter accounts that, that really make kind of light of this sort of thing, like the wrestling pastor. When uh, One of the things a lot of times I will see is like you've got that family that always signs up to camp late or whatever and so you just got the student pastor acting like a wrestler and putting a form tackle or something uh, on the, the parent who's coming to sign up late. That's just ministry and sometimes you don't really want to do that but you'd love for someone to be able to do that. I've just boxed myself into a corner now. I see all the eyes peering at me and sometimes you just got to laugh at it. That's what I'm trying to point, make a point of. But people are funny. We're all opinionated. I mean, think about it. I just want you to, in your mind, ask this question. What do you believe the responsibilities of the pastors are in the church? Last Sunday, we dealt with this in our small group time as we looked there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so what are the responsibilities of a pastor? What is it that we are to do? Are we to, is our main responsibility to, uh, to, to do pastoral care? Is our main responsibility to, to preach the word? Or is it both and? Is it everything in between? What are the responsibilities of the pastor? Those are questions that we need to wrestle with. These are the questions we need to find the answers for in the word of God. And so Paul here answers this question for us in chapter 2. 
And he outlines here the endurance of a faithful witness and a faithful teacher. We're going to look at the faithful teacher next week as we move into verses 14 and following. But this morning we're going to look at these first 13 verses and look at the idea of the endurance of a faithful witness. Here he's speaking specifically to Timothy. He's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But his instruction is applicable to all of us as believers. And so if you will read along with me beginning in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. In these 13 verses here, we see four references to bearing witness of the gospel here in this passage. Paul, four different times, verses 2, verses 8, and verse 10, he shares with us this idea that we're to bear witness, that we're to be a, a light for the gospel, a sounding board for the message of Christ. We also find in these verses four specific references to suffering and endurance. Verse 3, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12. So Paul here reminded Timothy that the mission of his life and consequently the mission of Timothy's life was to testify to the gospel. That is the mission of our life. We are to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You want to know what the purpose of your life is? It's this. Bring glory to the name of Jesus and the way you do that is two things. Live holy and point others to Jesus. That's what it's all about. We're to be on mission. Jesus didn't just save you so that you could sit around and wait to go to glory. Jesus redeemed you, saved you, so that you would be a vessel he could use, a conduit through which that salvation message could flow to others. So Paul was telling Timothy here that he was to be a witness of this life-transforming power of Jesus Christ that he had experienced. And now as a pastor, as a minister, he's to continue to preach that message. With that, he also reminded Timothy that this mission had not been and would not be an easy task. Paul is indicative of this. I mean, his entire life and ministry from the very beginning was very difficult. You remember Acts chapter 9, Paul's on the way to Damascus to uh, basically put an end to the believers there. And on the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. He goes then into the city because now he's blinded. He's been told to go into the city. A man by the name of Ananias would meet him and pray for him. And after Ananias lays his hands on him, prays for him, you know the story. Scales fall from his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He immediately begins to preach Jesus. And what happens then? He's persecuted. They sought to kill him. There, even in the very beginning, he was once the Pharisee in 
persecuting the church. Now he's the missionary proclaiming the gospel and advancing the church, and they want to put him to death. And so ministry is never easy. It involved for Timothy much hardship, much danger, much persecution. That was true of Paul and all of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul had experienced the mighty presence of Jesus through every single trial, through every single struggle, every single storm in his life. And so this reality calls for endurance in us as believers as we seek to be a faithful witness for the Lord. So how do we endure in this work? I want to share with you four actions that need to be uh, present in our lives, practiced in our lives. And I just just want to let you know that I'm borrowing most of this outline from one of the pastors in Raleigh by the name of Tony Merida. Great, great preacher, great pastor. And uh, just Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, when I began to lay this out, it looked a whole lot like his. I liked his language, and so I'm lifting it from him. Changed a few words because it didn't fit the flow, but uh, largely borrowing it from him. Number one, first action that should be practiced in our life is this. We need to abide in the gospel. See, the way to endure as a faithful witness is to abide, rest, stay in the gospel. Verse 1 You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This verse uh, is is flowing right out of what we see in chapter 2. Just remember, this epistle, all the books of the Bible, when they were originally written, did not have chapters, didn't even have verses there. And so, uh, obviously, the flow of thought is moving from one thing to the other. And and so we just break it up, or translators break it up, so it's a little bit easier to find places. And and so they're grouping thoughts together. But verse 1 obviously is flowing out of the thought that's laid out in chapter 1. And there he's making the appeal for Timothy to follow the example of Onesiphorus and not to follow the example of Phygelus and Hermogenes, those men that we looked at last Sunday. These men walked away from the faith. Many in Asia walked away from from Paul. They distanced themselves from the apostle, maybe even distancing themselves from the Lord as well. And so if Timothy was going to endure as a faithful witness, it would be because he was strengthened, as Paul says here in verse 1, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He had to abide in the gospel, abide in Christ. So Timothy is urged to do this, to daily depend on the enabling grace that flows from his union with Jesus. And you and I, we must do the same thing. You see, we never outgrow the gospel. How did you come into relationship with the Lord? You came into relationship through the gospel, right? The death, the burial, the resurrection, the preaching of that message began to show you that you're sinful, that your sin has separated you from God, that your sin is under condemnation by a holy God. But through Jesus and what he did through death, burial, and resurrection could be forgiven and have everlasting eternal life with him to change your life. That's how you became saved, but you don't outgrow that in your life. So you've got to continually abide in it, rest in it, run to it, stay in the gospel. And so that's what Paul's telling Timothy. It doesn't matter how hot the kitchen gets, Timothy. Look to the gospel. Rest in the gospel. Let the grace of Jesus constantly fill you. But notice what he doesn't tell Timothy here. He doesn't encourage him 
to simply be strong. Sometimes this is what you would hear. Man, you just need to be strong. Brother, you just need to lean in more. You need to try harder. You need to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Timothy, if you would just exert more energy, it wouldn't be as hard for you. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He says when it gets really, really tough, when it gets really difficult, when you don't feel like you can go on, draw strength from the gospel message, draw strength from Jesus. But I would add this, it's not just when it gets hard, it's also when it's easy. You don't ever want to rely on your own strength. We always want to draw strength from the grace of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, we don't always hear that from others, even Christians. This type of encouragement is is no help at all when we are told to do it ourselves. See, the work of the gospel is too difficult. It's beyond our abilities. And so instead, Paul is instructing Timothy here to be inwardly strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. He's He's not telling him to do it himself. He's not saying live out the charges of this chapter apart from the strength of Christ. We can't do it. He couldn't do it. Paul was aware of this. Nowhere in his writings do we find him instructing the church to trust and rely on their own skills, their own abilities, and their own power. Church, we have nothing to offer. Nothing to offer whatsoever. We got skilled people in this church, right? We got abilities. We've got financial uh, pockets here and there. I mean, there's some things that we can do in our own power. But how many of us can transform a person's life eternally? None of us. I don't know about you, but I can't. I don't have anything to offer anybody that will last eternity. I don't have anything that can help a person overcome sin in their life, the darkness of sin in their life. I've got nothing to offer of myself. Oh, I can sit with them, and I can counsel them, and I can say, man, here's some things that are messing you up, and if you won't do those, they will help. But sure, they're going to help for a little bit, but that sinful nature is just going to figure out another crevice, another crack, and it's going to continue to fester. Only Jesus, through his blood, can come in, eradicate and flush out the sinfulness that is destroying us. So Paul never told the church to rest in themselves. He always told the church to rest in the power of God, to, to draw strength from the grace of God. There's this constant emphasis on grace. You see, to the Corinthians, if you remember there, in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh that he had. We don't know exactly what that thorn is or was, but it was definitely something that was given to him by the Lord, allowed to come into his life, and Paul, on multiple occasions, asked the Lord to remove it. But then the Lord Jesus responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness my power is perfected. seems that Paul... There in 2 Corinthians 12, we would see it in 2 Corinthians 10 as well, that Paul was not necessarily a physical giant. He was an intellectual giant. He was a scholar. He was a theologian. He was a mighty preacher. But think about it. Academia is not much help when you're shipwrecked, when you're persecuted, when you're hungry, all the things that he experienced in his life. And yet these are some of the afflictions Paul endured all throughout the Mediterranean so how did he carry on the work of the gospel under such hardship? How did, he, he, how did he do this? He did it by abiding in the gospel, drawing strength from the grace and living it out each day in his life. See, he learned to rest in Jesus. He learned to be strengthened by him. Think about just one example of this. You remember Paul appealed to Caesar, and so he was uh, put on a ship after a little bit, and he was 
sent to Rome. And on the way to Rome, they are shipwrecked. They end up on this island, and there's some people there on the island. I think it's Malta, and uh, they're going to build a fire. And so I guess Paul was carrying some wood back to, to begin to build the fire. And what comes out of the wood? A snake. And the snake bites him in the arm. Everybody thinks he's going to be killed. They think it's the judgment of the gods, and, and yet nothing happens to him. If you saw the snake, and we're given no indication that Paul was scared, but if you saw a snake come out of a bundle of sticks, what would you do? You'd drop those sn- sticks, and you'd knock everybody down to get away from the snake. And if he bit you, you'd probably surely think you're going to die. But what's Paul's reaction? We don't see any fear whatsoever in his life. Why? He's resting in the grace of God. He knows that it doesn't matter what happens to him because his life is in the sovereign hands of Almighty God. If it's his time to die from a snake bite on the island of Malta on his way to Rome, glory be to God. He's lived a great life. He's glorified the Lord Jesus, and this is how he's going to make his exit. But if it's not his time, he's somehow going to be okay. He's going to go on to Rome, and he's going to fulfill the word of God or the, the will of God for his life. I'm preaching a whole lot more on this point than I've got on my paper. <laughs> I will, brother. If any of y'all hold your hand up on the back row, I, I got my eyes on you. It's been said that if you'll put yourself at the feet of Jesus, he'll set you on your feet. And you'll never be on your feet unless he puts you there. You see, the first key to enduring as a faithful witness is learning how to abide and be strengthened by the grace of God. How do you you abide? It begins with your devotion life, reading the Bible. That's the grace of God being poured out into your life every single day. The only way that we can know who God, I heard this this morning. Let me just say this. I'm ironing clothes. I'm watching Fox and Friends doing what I do every Sunday morning. And one of the hosts on there, they were doing this religious uh, interview thing and um, about some book coming out and, and this lady says, I have my relationship with God, but I just don't, I don't, I don't get the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. I don't agree with the Bible. She said something like that. And in my head, I'm like, you don't have a relationship with God. It's the fact. We don't know anything about God other than what's revealed to us in this book. But I sit in the tree stand on a Sunday morning. It's my church. It's the way I connect with God. It ain't the Word of God. Unless you've got your Bible with you or you've got it memorized, you're meditating on it. That's not an encounter with God. We only know who God is through the written revelation of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ, which bears witness with the written revelation of God. It's not our own personal experiences. It is because God has revealed himself in Scripture and in history, which is always in concordance with Scripture. That's a good place to say amen. And again, that was free this morning. But it begins, this abiding with reading, meditating, studying, setting under preaching, marinating yourself in the Word of God, praying, seeking His face, abiding in this gospel, singing the gospel is helpful. We must abide. Secondly, our second action is to pass on the gospel. And I've got to hurry here. Verse 2, In what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also, this verse is picking up on the idea of guarding the gospel that we saw back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. But here the point is furthered by the instruction to pass the gospel on to others who will also pass it 
on. And so what Paul's describing here is what we would call discipleship today. Paul here has come to faith in Jesus. I mentioned Acts 9 where he came to faith in Jesus. He immediately begins to preach the gospel. But then if we look at the history of Paul's life, he actually left Damascus and went into the wilderness, most scholars believe, for about three years. And we believe that's when the Lord was discipling him, taking his Jewish knowledge, his knowledge of the Old Testament, and, and, and forming it in, conforming it to the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. And so the Lord discipled the Apostle Paul, and then it was the Apostle Paul who's discipling others like Timothy. And so Paul now is saying this, I've entrusted the gospel to you, Timothy, through discipleship. You do the same thing. We established this church in Ephesus. We appointed elders. We have we've begun to build the word of God into the peoples. Continue to do that so that they will do it, and then those will do it, and then those We'll do it. Discipleship is what he's talking about here. We must pass the gospel on. Now, this instruction primarily is about equipping pastors, ministry leaders, but the implications are for all of us. See, discipleship is for every believer. It's not just the clergy. One of the most beautiful things that's ever happened in, in, in the history of the church was the Reformation in the 1500s. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the castle doors of Wittenberg, he's basically uh, 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 protesting the Catholic Church. And what was the Catholic Church doing then? It was holding the Word of God, what little they actually believed and taught, to the clergy. The laity had nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with the Bible. They couldn't even read it because the church forbid it to be in any language other than Latin. And most people outside of Italy could not speak Latin unless they were educated. And so the poor definitely did not have the gospel. So discipleship, the beauty of what we see here is it's not just for the clergy, it's for everybody. We're to entrust all people with the gospel. We're to teach them so that they teach others. This is doubly so for pastors. We need to make sure that we're equipping the next generation of pastors so that they will pass on a true gospel, real gospel, to subsequent generations. The pastors are the ones who are tasked with shepherding the teaching ministry of the church. They're the ones to guard and preserve the gospel message, keeping it pure and free from all error. This teaching ministry has three faces. We could call it preaching, we could call it teaching, and we could call it discipling. Let me just kind of point out an illustration that might help you understand the difference between the two. Some would say, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Some would say preaching is kind of yelling and, and, and teaching is a little bit more sophisticated, but they're teaching the same thing. I, I don't know what your definition there is, but think of it this way if you're a golfer. In your golf club, you will have three different kinds of clubs. You've got woods, you've got irons, and you've got a putter. The woods are big, they're showy, they're impressive. It's a lot like public preaching, where the pastor can stand and, and cover a lot of people and, and influence a lot of different individuals. Then you have irons. They require finesse and accuracy. Fire, irons are a whole lot like a small group where there's feedback and dialogue. It's a little bit more intimate, but there's still a whole lot of people. Then there's the putter. This is the club that poor golfers misunderstand and so often fail to practice with. It's where a lot of golfers trip up. For me, my golf game stinks on every end, so it doesn't matter. But a lot of people who can hit the others neglect the putter. The putter is personal. It's for short distances. We would liken this to the third way of teaching here described in verse 2, that of discipleship. Teach so that they will teach. Pass it on. Which one of these clubs is the most important? You need all three. 
And most pastors will have this, right? They got a pulpit. They got a pulpit ministry. There's a good many of pastors who are in some sort of small group where they're on a little bit more intimate level interacting and, and discipling and ministering people, but a whole lot of pastors and a, the vast majority of the laity miss the third club, that of discipleship. You and three or four other people intimately on a regular basis, getting around the Word of God, studying it together, praying together, encouraging one another, holding one another accountable, speaking into one another's lives. That's the way you build a healthy church. That's the way you build and expand the kingdom of God. And so pastors and churches would do well to place a primacy on discipleship. Uh, the pastors should be looking for others to invest their lives in. Small group leaders should be looking for people to invest their lives in. We all should be looking for people to invest our lives in and also for someone to invest their life in us. We all need to be in discipleship and discipling others. Thirdly, we need to abide in the gospel. We need to pass on the gospel. Third, we need to persist for the gospel. Look at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul here mentions suffering and endurance four times, like I said earlier. Uh, many years ago, I remember uh, right out of college, I was a student pastor at uh, First Baptist Fort Smith. We did our own camp, and we brought in a, a camp speaker. Now he's a senior pastor in Texas, but he used to be a big circuit guy and did a lot of camps, but his name is Neil McClendon. And Neil's got a real, do you know who Neil is? He's got a real um, um, straightforward delivery in the message. And really, sometimes, at least back then, kind of brash. And uh, on one end, I was like super offended. In another way, I was like, oh, I kind of like this style. And so it rubbed some people raw. But I just remember him throughout the week making a statement, and it stuck with me. Suffering is part of the deal. If you sign up, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to realize that suffering is part of the deal. That's what Timothy is being told here by the Apostle Paul. Share with me in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so Paul goes on to, to list out three traits of the persistence that is needed. So a good witness is, number one, focuses on the mission. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Soldiers, think about this, they live with the awareness that there's a war going on. Even in peacetime, they still have the mindset that there's a war going on or at least there's the capacity for a war to happen at any moment. They've got to be focused. They've got to be clear on what the mission is. And so there's a sense of concentration, austerity, self-denial on their part, and disregard for trivial matters. They've got one one focus, and that is the mission before them. The same should be true of us as Christians. We shouldn't mistake this as a focus to deny family life or personal relationships. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's just simply speaking of a mindset and a mission. I mean, as the pastor, as the believer, lives and uh, as the pastor and as believer lives and goes about his or her life. The focus is not lost on the mission, even when they're doing some of these other things. In fact, oftentimes God uses the other things to weave the mission into. But we're to focus and not allow trivial things to get us tripped up. Secondly, a good witness follows orders. In verse 5, he talks about an athlete who is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, if we could change the rules in sports, 
we'd always win, right? We just change it to whatever benefits you. Uh, a few days ago, a week or so ago, uh, watching the College World Series and watching Nick and I's Arkansas Razorbacks lose in the CWS, I would have changed the rules because I would have made it, if you hit the wall, it's a home run rather than just going over because we hit the wall a couple times and we needed a home run. I would have changed the rules at that point and we'd be dancing to the finals this coming Monday, tomorrow. That's not the way it works. You have to compete according to the rules. There's a standard set for every game, and you only crown the champion when you play according to those rules. So what are the orders? What are the orders that we're to follow as a good witness? Well, it begins with Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples. We've got to follow the orders. Thirdly, a good witness functions daily. This is how we persist for the gospel. Functions daily. It talks about a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think about it. The hardworking farmer cannot take shortcuts. You can't do it if you want to have a crop. There's a toil that's involved day in and day out. Farming is never glorious also like athletics and the military can be. Uh, in the last several weeks, if you drive around the area, what do you see? You see farmers baling hay, loading it on trailers, carrying it to the barn or wherever they store it, and that's what happens. It grows, it's cut, it's baled, it's stacked. But what you don't see with the farmers holding a press conference, and we've had a great crop this year, and the, the rain's been great, and, and, and man, look at these players we had on our team. They were out there, and it was hot, but we had water for them, and, and they drove those tractors like never before. They kept it right where it needed to be at the right speed with the right RPMs. They don't hold press conferences for farmers. Why? Because it's monotonous. It's, it's toilsome. It's an endless work. Sometimes it's a thankless job. But if you want to succeed, if you want to persist in the gospel, you've got to be like that farmer who just day in and day out grinds, grinds, and grinds. Ministries like that. You get up early, you work the field, you care for the animals. Sometimes you shoot the wolves and you go to bed. You get up the next day, you do it all over again. Persistence in the gospel is maintained as we focus on the mission, follow the orders, function daily. There's a fourth action. That is, got to remember the hero of the gospel. Verse 8 through 13 calls us to remember Jesus Christ, who's the one risen from the dead, is the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. Timothy, you've heard this from me. This is not just something that you've come up with or someone else has come up with, but it's been preached by me. Others have bore witness to it. I'm suffering for it, he says. But the word of God is not bound. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so if you've died with him, you're going to live with him. If you endure with him, you're going to reign with him. But if you deny him, he'll deny you. But if you're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. In order for us to endure to the end as a faithful witness, you have to do these things. Abide, pass on, persist for, and now remember that Jesus is the hero. It's not you. You're not the hero of the gospel. Here's what happens most of the times when we're trying to be a faithful witness. You're tripping up over yourself, right? How many times have you tried to share the gospel and a person responded in faith and you look back and they're like, how? 
I didn't even know. I was so confused. I, I don't know how I explained it. And, it, and you're, the person's like, yeah, I'd love to accept Jesus. And you're like trying to walk them back through it because you feel like you did such a horrible job that surely they didn't understand. But it wasn't you. It was the Spirit of God just speaking through the Word of God, even despite your blunders. Jesus is the hero of the gospel. He's the one on the cross. He's the one who's been resurrected. We're just a sinner saved by grace. And to go along with that, we see the, in the history of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation that as humans, we are oftentimes fickle and forgetful. Why do we have a history of salvation in the Bible? Why is it that when you read the Bible, there's so much history? I'm I'm in 2 Kings right now, and my devotion part is as far as the Old Testament, and I'm Acts in the New Testament. And what am I reading? I'm reading history. I'm reading like King Jehoshaphat, and I'm reading uh, right now uh, in Acts, uh, where am I? I'm at chapter 15 this morning, where they sent a delegation, Paul and Arnabas, to, to, to the church Jerusalem to get some word on what we should do about meat sacrifice to idols and these things. Why do we need to know this history? Because it teaches us that God is faithful, that God is able, and that God will accomplish his mission. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded. And history does that for us. That's why God gives it. It also heightens the vision we have of Jesus and his work on the cross. You see, when we have a lofty vision of the person and the work of Christ, it will keep us in the fight. It will keep us on the game or in the game, and it will keep us on the farm. Going back to those three illustrations. So Paul here declares that Jesus was preached in his gospel. There's no gospel without a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And the gospel is occupied with the hero. When Jesus is the hero, you can and you will do everything for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. That's what he says. I endure everything for the sake of the gospel. I do it for the, for the opportunity that those who would believe would have an opportunity to believe. It's here that Paul quotes verses 11 through 13, a saying that probably was popular in his day, but it reinforces the idea that believers must endure hardship. And so if we die, there's a promise that we will live with him. If we endure, there's a promise that we will reign with him. But if we deny him, like those in Asia, he's going to deny us. And if we're faithless, our faithlessness will be met with the faithfulness of God to his justice. That's what you need to remember. God is always faithful. So if you've been reached this morning with the gospel of Jesus, the call upon your life now as a Christ follower is to share that gospel with others who need Jesus. I would just want you to think about that this morning. Who in your life, what, what circles of influence do you have where there are lost people? Why do we focus so much on this, Pastor? Why are you always talking about how I need to share my faith with others? It's because that's what God's called us to do. That's what we're called to do. The best evangelism strategy for us to live out the Great Commission in our lives and in our community is not that we say, hey, come to Red Lane. Because guess what? In our culture, that's not going to fly today. A hundred years ago, that would have been great. We could have flooded this place. Now the only time that we tend to get a huge crowd that's overflowing is when somebody passes away or there's a funeral or some sort of special event, a concert perhaps. They're not coming to hear the gospel. But this is what God's called us to do from the very beginning. Take the gospel to where you're at, where you live, where you work, where you play. That's why we put such an emphasis on it. Robert Coleman, the great Methodist, I had the privilege of sitting under him in my seminary days. He said this, to keep this good news to ourselves would be in effect to repudiate its validity. 
So what Dr. Coleman is saying is this. If you believe the gospel is valid, you can't keep it to yourself. You've got to pass it on. And we validate it by enduring in the gospel through the good and the bad times. We validate it as we seek to share with others how Jesus can redeem and transform our lives, even when we're hurting and when we're struggling. You see, people, when they see your life, that it's not just all hunky-dory, but you're still faithful to Jesus, there's something attractive about that. But the only time I say I love Jesus is when everything is good in my life. There's something not attractive at, that, at all about that. That means I'm fickle. That means Jesus isn't powerful enough to really help me in all points of my life. He's only powerful enough to help me when my life is really good, which in essence is only when I make my life really good. There are times that God does one of two things. He allows or he causes hardship to come to you so that people can see your faithfulness in the midst of that. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I agree with that. Take your Bible, flip it to the very middle. There's a guy named Job, not Job, Job. And that's his story. That's his story. Paul Gilbert, I came across this quote this week. He says, you write a sermon, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, if it's false or it's true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? What's the story you're writing on how you respond to the things in your life? Church, let's endure as a faithful witness for Christ through the ups, through the downs, through the valleys, and through the hills every day, making much of Jesus. Amen? We're going to move into a time of response. And uh, my prayer is this, that as we've talked about being a faithful witness, God's beginning to place people on your mind. They're right there. You see their face. You're calling their names. Maybe their neighbors, their coworkers, their uh, people, their family members that that are associated to you because your kids go to school together. All kinds of connections that we have in our community. My prayer is that God's beginning to place them there. Maybe there's those names that come up on your email every day on Bless Every Home because you're connected to that, but you really haven't done much with it. Now you need to refocus and say, I'm going to pray for these people. I'm going to engage these people. I'm going to serve these people so that I can have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Maybe this morning you said, I can't be a faithful witness because I don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, there's nothing greater that you could do today than to say yes to Jesus. That was our prayer for those kids that went to camps, a prayer for those who will come to our other camps this summer. It's our prayer every single day, especially every Sunday, that people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus would say yes to him. That's the heart of our God. So let's pray. Father, this morning.